Okay, I am going to read our scripture today that comes from Luke 10, 25 to 37, and then Josh is going to come preach for us. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him back to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Thanks, Ange. Well, good evening, everybody. Great to be with you again uh, tonight. And if you haven't yet, I really want to encourage you to open a Bible to Luke chapter 10. Uh, Just incredible, one of my favorite chapters really in the Bible. Um, And we saw last week how Jesus sends us out on mission to share the good news. And today we see how Jesus really calls us to go and love. And next week we're going to see that Jesus calls us to come and sit. And then in chapter 11, uh, we have the privilege here in two weeks of having Nick Stumbo come, and he's going to preach for us in our Luke series on the Lord's Prayer. I'm really excited about that. And then uh, just a couple weeks after that, um, we're going to be able to have um, an old friend of mine, Bill Clem, come, and he is going to be speaking to us from 2 Corinthians. That'll be on uh, June, chap- um, June chapter 6, my goodness, June 6, so too many chapters um, going on here. But uh, he'll be coming on June 6th. And uh, I was able to have lunch with Bill just a couple of weeks ago. We went down to Hawthorne. We went to this kind of Thai restaurant place. And uh, we were catching up, and we were talking about um, uh, him coming and speaking. And uh, when it came time to actually pay for the bill, uh, our waitress came over and informed us that the people who were sitting next to us had already left had paid for our meal. It was a really nice gesture. I mean, it wasn't expensive, but it wasn't cheap, you know, it was a pretty decent sized bill, and um, we were just really thankful for that, and uh, it really hit me in those kind of moments. I don't know if you've ever had somebody do that for you. Maybe you were driving in a drive through line at Starbucks or something like that, and somebody paid for your coffee or, or whatever have you. It was a really kind and, and generous act, and those moments are kind of disorienting a little bit. I mean, I really wanted to thank the person, uh, but I didn't even know who that person was. Um, And I kind of began to wonder why this person would even do something like that. Were they a Christian, right? Uh, Were they just trying to be a good person? 
I mean, was their favorite movie that hit from 2000, Pay It Forward, you know, with Haley Joel Osment or something? You know, you know what I'm talking about, that great movie. If you remember the film, Haley Joel Osment was given a task from his teacher to come up with an idea that would benefit all of mankind. People really took to this idea. His idea was to do good deeds for three different people. And when you did a good deed for those three people, instead of them paying you back, you pay it forward, right? You've heard about this before, right? It was his idea of how to change the world. It was a fad. It's come and gone in some ways, but apparently this guy was still doing it. I think it's interesting to say the least because we live in a culture that pays it back. We, We live in a culture of pay it back. We want to return to other people what they've done to us, I lived in Corvallis, a big blessing would be when some other family would watch our kids, and then we would say, okay, we'll watch yours in return. You know, there was that kind of idea. Maybe someone's done something for you, they helped you move, and so you feel like I should help you move, right? Someone helped you with their yard, I'll help you with your yard. And sometimes there's people who've asked you to help them move, and you're like, well, they never helped me move. And you have this inner conflict go on, right? This guy paid for me at that restaurant, I wish I could have at least thanked him. And if that guy asked for my help, maybe I would have been more prone to help him. Guys, we live in a society that generally speaks about us treating other people the way that we think they deserve to be treated. We're told to treat people the way that we think they deserve to be treated. It's not a new tension for us. Uh, We find a lawyer in our text this evening uh, who seems to think the same way. He asks Jesus a couple of questions, and then Jesus tells probably the most famous story uh, that he is known for telling, the parable of the Good Samaritans, what we call it. And these questions that are raised are questions about eternal life. They're questions about loving our neighbor. And so I'm curious how this story of the Good Samaritan helps us understand those two questions. And so let's find out together. I really want to be able just to kind of walk through this story to really let the story be illustrative uh, for itself um, and, and, and see what we can arrive here. So this should be on the screen for you. We see in verse 25 through 29, the lawyer's two questions. And then in verses 30 through 37, we see Jesus' famous story. And then we're going to ask how do I know that I have eternal life? That's that's really the theme of this story. It has a lot to say about loving our neighbor. A lot of people talk about how this story has a lot to say about um, things like social justice. But the question that comes right out of the gate is a question about eternal life. So how do I know that I have eternal life? Right? Let's look in verse 25. What does he say? Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Luke introduces us to this expert in the law. This is not like a lawyer that you and I think of um, in today's terms, in our sense of the word. This was a person who was an expert in the law, like the Torah, the first five books, the foundation block of what you and I now call the Old Testament. So this was 
what we would call a Bible scholar, basically, a teacher, a respected authority. And just imagine, I mean, the 72 were sent out, we saw just in the verses prior to this one, they had been spreading the news of the kingdom of God. So I imagine more and more people were hearing about Jesus, they were hearing about what his disciples were now doing, and so this lawyer comes to kind of check out Jesus' credentials. When it says that he stood up to test Jesus, we mustn't understand that he was standing up basically trying to trap Jesus. No, this was a standard procedure for rabbis in this day. I mean, this lawyer probably thought Jesus was a new rabbi here on the scene. He wanted to test Jesus' opinion on an issue that was being debated during their time. I mean, even as a pastor, I get emails like this, questions like this all the time, people wanting to test me. They're not quizzing me per se, but trying to know and test what it is that I think. So they'll ask me, what's your stance on this issue or that issue? What do you think about this? You know, um, this is pretty standard kind of stuff. Well, what's his test question? He says, what shall I, or really for any, anyone for that matter, what shall we do to inherit eternal life? Inherit eternal life. As a Bible scholar, he might be thinking of Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where Daniel basically prophesies about this idea that, that at the end of it, everything, uh, all the dead will be raised and some will go to everlasting life. And some, he says, will go to everlasting shame. Right? Will, he give Jesus, will Jesus give an orthodox answer to a question like this? Well, annoyingly to this man, Jesus, in verse 26, sort of in a typical rabbinical style, answers his question by asking another question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus' answer is basically to this man, well, what does the Bible say? If you want eternal life, go to the Scriptures. That's actually good news. That's good direction for our lives. If you want eternal life, go to the Bible. What is it written there? Well, the Bible scholar answers with words he probably would have recited every single day of his life, known as the Shema, right? This is the heartbeat of the Jewish faith there in 27. What does it say? You know it, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Right? with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. He puts together then Deuteronomy 6, where that comes from, and a verse from Leviticus 19 about loving your neighbor. He, so he puts together this single composite command, this dual love command in both of its directions, that you should love God with everything you are, all of your faculties. And with that same sort of love, you should love humanity that God has made as you would love yourself. And Jesus responds to him what in verse 28? What does he say? He goes, correct. That's right. Right? He doesn't say, that's a good answer, but that's one answer. Right? He says, you have answered correctly. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus returns to this lawyer's original question. When the lawyer asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, do this, and you will live. I mean, you know the answer to your own question right out of the Bible, Jesus is saying. Love God and love your neighbor. Just do that. You'll live. You will be among those who will rise, like in Daniel chapter 12, on that last day to eternal life. I'm just curious, how does this sit with you? How does that sit with you? I mean, there's no caveats here, right? You can inherit eternal life if you do this, Jesus says. 
Love God with all. All means all, right? All does not mean some. All means all. All your heart, right? Your will, like that seat of your emotions, right? With all your mind, every thought, right? With all your strength, with all your physicality, with all your soul. I mean, that's just the the entire entity of who you are, including your spirit. So how do you respond to this? I mean, I don't really want to bury the lead here, so I won't. So can I just say, let us remember that the good news of the gospel is the announcement that Jesus, the Son of God, has come and has loved perfectly. He has loved his Father perfectly in this way. He has loved neighbor perfectly in this way. Right? He has lived perfectly. He's lived perfectly because he's loved perfectly. And then the gospel is that Jesus died substitutionally, and he's risen triumphantly, and he offers us eternal life in him. So eternal life, we know this as Christians, it comes through a trusting faith in Jesus. That's why John, the apostle in the letter of 1 John says, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. This is why Paul says the same thing in Romans. He says, the wages of sin, of you and I's lack of love, is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, you inherit eternal life by works. It's just not your works. The perfect works of Jesus on your behalf, he loved perfectly. He died and paid for all of our badness, right, all of our sin. And by receiving his death and resurrection on our behalf through faith in him, all of his goodness, all of his righteousness is attributed to us, right? We have our names, as we saw last week, written in heaven. But because we don't think of eternal life this way, of inheriting eternal life this way, we think like this lawyer does in a very religious way. What does he want? He wants clearer boundaries. He wants to know his borders. What does he say in verse 29? Desiring to justify himself. He said to Jesus, who's my neighbor then? Right? Luke tells you that he wants to justify himself. Right? It's as though he moves from being the challenger to Jesus to now being the challenged. He's moved from being the examiner, right, to being the examined. And this is exactly what you and I try to do in order that you and I might feel like we are good enough, a good enough person in our own eyes to inherit eternal life. We try and we try to justify ourselves, don't we? So how does this man try and justify himself? By getting a clearer scorecard. Okay, so who are we talking about here, Jesus? Just for clarification, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who, who do I have to love? This is a demand of love. How far does my love have to go? What's the scope of it? This is a really important question, isn't it? Right? We want to love and help others, but who are we required to help and love? Everybody? Anybody? What about people that aren't on our path at all? Are they our neighbors? Just anybody in the world? And what if they start moving into your neighborhood? What if they start moving into Gresham? I mean, this could be a really polite, 
political discussion about maybe ethical responsibility of some kind, but it can also be a highly toxic political battleground about a lot of issues, can it? Issues of immigration, if you, issues about refugees. And guys, it gets even more challenging when you bring the Bible into it. Because take Leviticus 19, for example, where, where this Bible scholar pulls love your neighbor from, the same chapter speaks of us loving the foreigner as ourselves. And then Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18 and 19, I'd bookmark that one, he goes even further and, and it says, the Lord God loves the foreigner among you, giving them food and clothing, and you are to love those who are foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. He says, love your neighbor, great. Okay, but who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? That this lawyer represents Judaism when he asks this question. He wants to limit God's mercy. He wants to limit God's mercy, and that's what religious people do. Religious people restrict God's mercy. Religious people restrict God's mercy. See, the religious establishment is exclusive. Right? They, they nitpick with their legalism. I mean, the Pharisees in this day, they had told people they had to adhere to about 600 laws. One of them was that you were allowed to swallow vinegar on the Sabbath, but you were not allowed to gargle it. That would be working. That would be labor. Do you know gargling is labor, you guys? It was okay to, to eat an egg laid on the Sabbath, but whatever hen laid that egg, you had to kill them the next day because the hen violated the Sabbath. Huh, right? Only people who met their criteria deserve to belong to God's people. This would have been the thought of the day that yes, my neighbor is God's people, I love God's people, but what about other people? Why, why would someone act this way? Well, the clearer the boundaries, the more a religious person can know how they're adding up. If I have a clear scorecard, I know how I'm performing. Am I performing well enough to be accepted by God in my own eyes? Am I performing well enough to inherit the kingdom of God, to inherit eternal life? But all of this religious boundary drawing only has the self at the center. It does not have the neighbor at the margins. See, religious people restrict God's mercy. Guys, I wonder if we do that. As a church, I mean. I mean, do we expect people to sort out their lives before we will welcome them. I mean, how would you find GBC if you came along and, and came into this room and you came along as maybe an addict or an alcoholic, a practicing homosexual or lesbian or trans person, a prostitute, a loud progressive activist, a raging racist, would you be warmly talked to? Would you be invited into people's homes for dinner or lunch? Or would you feel condemned? I'm just curious, do we pay people back? People who we think are decent and would add to our lives in the way that we'd want them to? Or are we people who pay it forward, so to speak, showing mercy? Now hear me clearly, you guys. Non-Christians cannot belong before they believe. So if you're 
I'm not saying you can belong before you believe. That's not what I'm saying. You can't. You can't belong to God's family until you are born again into God's family, which only comes through repentance of your sins and faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's how the Bible teaches us that we belong. It's through faith in Jesus, through that repentance and faith. But you can be made very welcome and looked after and loved and cared for and helped. And it's often through that that creates platforms for the gospel. And I just kind of wonder how many people have to come along and conceal their own identities because they worry if I tell you who I really am, you won't welcome me. Guys, religious people restrict God's mercy. They want to draw boundaries where Jesus has crossed them. And that's how Jesus responds. Look in verse 30. Right, we have the story of the Good Samaritan. Right, if you take the story by itself, you might miss what the story does in this context. It's shifting the whole point of view. It reverses our perspective. You see, the question was, who is my neighbor? And that sounds really different in a debate than it does in a ditch. It, it's a different question when asked by an academic who's trying to define their ethical boundaries than when it's asked from someone who's lying half dead by the roadside in desperate need of help. To the scholar, a neighbor is an object to be theoretically defined. But for the person who's in the ditch, the neighbor is anyone who would come to his rescue. And so Jesus tells this story. A man was journeying from Jerusalem to Jericho. This was a real road in these times. This is not like Rainbow Road in Mario Kart or with unicorns. I mean, this is like a real place. People are like, yes, I've been on that road, that kind of idea. So Jesus is not being hypothetical here. I should have an image for you on the screen of this road. It was a notoriously dangerous road, about 17 miles long. There's so many turns, cliffs, hiding spots all along the way. You can look at that image right there and go, yeah, that'd be pretty dangerous, right? All it would take is a few armed robbers to jump out, and there is no chance of escape. So this would probably touch pretty close to home for these people. And verse 30 then says it all. He fell among robbers who stripped him beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Hooray. Right? Priests were trained in public health duties. He should be able to help. But no, what does it say? When he saw him, he saw him. He passed by on the other side. We don't know why, it doesn't even matter. The point is that he was a priest, and Jesus wants you to know that. Traveling in this direction means that he most likely would have been just serving in Jerusalem, in the temple, and traveling home. So this guy has been in the very presence of God. This guy has been teaching the law to the people of God, but he didn't do what he was teaching. Did he have eternal life? Did he have eternal life? Verse 32, so likewise a Levite. This guy could help. I mean, they did all the practical stuff in the temple, like lifting up animals, you know, to be sacrificed and that sort of thing. Right? But did he help? You know the story, right? When he came to the place and saw him, he saw him. He passed by on the other side. 
He saw the half-dead man and passed by. Did he have eternal life? Did he have eternal life? Now, any story of threes, we all know the third one is the surprise, right? I'm bad at telling jokes. I won't even tell you a joke. But even in joke telling, the third thing is always the punchline, right? Like, you know this. Okay, so even these people know this. The number three is the surprise. So who's coming next, right? You know who's coming next, but transport yourself as the listener to the story. You've never heard this story before. Who's coming next? If you're a good Jewish person, maybe you're thinking, well, the third person, maybe it's going to be a good old Israelite farmer, right? And he's going to put all those religious hypocrites to shame. And maybe you're like, maybe God himself will intervene. He'll send an angel just to shame everybody else. Maybe he'll do that. No, what happens? Verse 33, we know it. But a Samaritan, says Jesus, we, we should hear the gasp from the listeners. They would have not been expecting this by, these, these listeners would not have been expecting this by the victim in the story. He, the victim wouldn't even have expected this. Right, this Samaritan shouldn't even be in this region at all. He should not be traveling in Judea. He would have been unwelcomed here. Right, that's what the man who was the victim in the side of the road would have probably shouted to the Samaritan if he had met him before this encounter. He would have said something like, you are not welcome here. Furthermore, the Samaritan would have hated this Jewish person just as much as the Jew hated the Samaritan. I mean, do you remember the last chapter of chapter 9 that we looked at a few weeks back? The Samaritan village rejects Jesus, and James and John say, should we send down fire from heaven? Right? That tells you the racial and religious tension between these two groups. Right? This Jew, though, he's bleeding to death. What did he need? What did he need? He needed a neighbor. And so we see this, verse 33, the last word of it is the turning point of this whole story. This is the climax. Who's going to be a neighbor? The priest saw him, passed by. The Levite saw him and passed by. The Samaritan came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. Guys, this is the word that's most often used in describing Jesus in the Gospels. This is an attribute of Christ. In the Old Testament, this is an attribute of God himself. So you have a Samaritan here in the story that these people would have picked up on behaving in a God-like, Christ-like way. He is obeying the Torah, unlike the priest and the Levite. He's doing what inherits eternal life, according to Jesus. This hated, despised, and rejected outsider is coming to the rescue. And in that respect, he resembles Jesus. And he piles it on thick in verses 34 through 35. He went to him. So there's no social distancing going on here, right? He goes over to him. He binds up his wounds. He pours oil and wine on him, which just sounds like food and drink to us, but this would have been medicinal in this way. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which would be about two weeks wages, that would be a lot of money, gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more uh, you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. He's going to come back. He doesn't go, I did my part. I'm coming back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man? Jesus says. 
Guys, it's hard to feel the full force of this because for us, Samaritan is a good title. We call people good Samaritans when they do things that they're not required to do. I have an, I have an older neighbor who's a non-believer and I helped shovel her driveway when we had that crazy snowstorm. I've, she's never said a word to me before and she opens her door and goes, a good Samaritan. I didn't take that as an insult, right? But a Jew in Jesus' day, this would have been shocking. The Samaritans were the lowest of the low. When the kingdom split in two after Solomon's death, the northern kingdom went its own way and defected from God's people. They set up rival worship in Samaria. They intermarried with the Assyrians. They were heretics and they were seen as scum. I don't know what the equivalent might be for you and I in our society. In our day and age, it kind of depends on the person. But, but maybe you have somebody come to mind. Maybe there's people that come to your mind. Just ask yourself, who do you kind of roll your eyes at? Right, when you hear about something that someone did or a group of people said. Right, who do you see as a hindrance to your way of life? Who, who is it that you would never want your kids to hang out with? Right? It's the Samaritan that comes to the rescue. As we get this, when there's people that we don't like and they're portrayed as heroes, and then whoever we portray or think of as our own heroes don't act in the way that we know they should act, that's shocking. So who embodies the Old Testament law of love? It's not their heroes. It's the Samaritan, their enemy. Furthermore, this Bible scholar I'm betting is probably thinking of 2 Chronicles chapter 28. In that, in that book of the Bible, you have this story where Judah is defeated in judgment by Syria, and they are captive by the Samaritans. They're, they're Jewish prisoners in the northern kingdom. 200,000 of their people, brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces, their own kids, and they're shown mercy and sent home. It was the Samaritans that did this to God's people. This should be on the screen for you. In verse 15, it says, the men who have been mentioned by name, referring to the Samaritans, took the captives, the Jewish captives from the southern kingdom, and with the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided with them food and drink, and anointed them, and carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. This is a story this lawyer would have known, that everybody would have known. The Samaritans showed mercy to God's people. They clothed them, they fed them, they gave them healing balm and put them on donkeys. It's not difficult to see where Jesus got this parable from. It's all about these insiders showing mercy to the helpless, to the religious insiders. Right, so how does it all end up? Verse 36 we're kind of transported out of the story. And Jesus says, who is the neighbor? Who proved to be the neighbor? According to this whole story, it might be better said, who became the neighbor? Does the wounded man have neighbor status? That was the lawyer's question. Is that my neighbor? And Jesus completely turned it around. 
And he said, do these three travelers have neighbor status? Do you see this? The lawyer says, is he my neighbor? And Jesus basically looks at him and says, are you his neighbor? Do you see that? It's subtle, but very, very strong. I mean, what a contrast here between these people. What a picture of of God's mercy. They're to show mercy, yet the religious people restrict, but Jesus' people neighbor. The, the, the scholar replied with the only answer that actually could be given. What does he say? The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. The scholar got the point. This is how Jesus demands we should answer this question. Who is my neighbor? Right? Not as the one who I choose to define as deserving my assistance, but the one who is the neighbor and acts as the neighbor to others in need and is prepared to cross the street, who's prepared to cross the barriers of types of sin that would keep me away, things that would pull me away from people. It's the one who's prepared to cross the barriers of partiality, of ethnicity, of prejudice, of history. This Samaritan in this story crossed every one of those boundaries. There was a lot of history here. Who is my neighbor? Well, the neighbor is the one who shows me mercy. The Samaritan is my neighbor. So Jesus tells him to go and do likewise. Go and make yourself a neighbor to other people by having compassion on them. But religious people restrict God's mercy. Followers of Jesus display God's mercy. I mean, remember the question was what? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer of the man is the one who showed him mercy. It's literally the one who did mercy. It's the same word. Jesus clinches the theme, go and do likewise. That is how you know you have eternal life. And that leads us to our third question. We've seen the questions of the lawyer, the story of Jesus. And now we have to wrestle with this and go, how do I know if I have eternal life? This is not saying that you can earn eternal life. That's not what this story contributes to the greater story of the whole Bible. You can't earn eternal life by being a neighbor. But rather, there is a quality of self-giving, self-sacrificial love for others that is the evidence of our love for God, that is the proof of our faith in Jesus and is a part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is at work in our lives. Why? Because a person with eternal life knows that Jesus has been a neighbor to them. I know because Jesus has been a neighbor to me. In other words, you've experienced the neighboring of Jesus, and if you have, then you become a neighbor like Jesus. I mean, just look closely at this story. This is a picture of Jesus himself, is it not? I mean, we were people, you and I, every single one of us in this room, we were people beaten down on the side of the road by our sin. We were stripped naked in our shame and not only left half dead in the ditch, but the Bible teaches us that we were dead in our sin. But along came Jesus, the eternal son of God, He took on flesh and he walked the road of life 
And when he saw me, he didn't pass by. He saw me dead in the ditch. And he was the only one who was totally perfect, sinless, and right to feel the distance between us. You want to talk about a distance? If there was ever a gap between the quality and character and culture of people, it was between Jesus and me. But yet when he saw me, he had compassion. He had compassion. Guys, compassion is not just a feeling, it's an action. Because Jesus walked across the road, right? He bound up our wounds. Isaiah 53, 5 says, and with his wounds we are healed. He poured the oil of blessing on our head and he's called us a child of his father because he's received the curse of our sin upon his own head on the cross. He held up wine and made us drink and he said this wine represents the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins but instead he cried out from the cross I thirst and was given sour wine on the cross and after drinking that cup down to its dregs he cried out it is finished he's given us a hospital he's given us a home in the family of God Jesus provides all that is necessary for our lives at his own expense. And he says, just like the Samaritan, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Guys, this is a picture of Jesus. He rescues from death at his own expense when no one else could. Guys, if no one will cross the road in the vastness of our eternity, we will die. So Jesus crossed the road of heaven and earth when we couldn't be more far apart. As someone who inherits eternal life and someone who loves God with all they are and loves their neighbor in this way is only someone who can say, I was like a wounded man on the road of life and I was helpless and I was going to die. I was on my way to hell, but Jesus loved me. But Jesus loved me. He didn't look at my shortcomings and he didn't pay me back. He didn't say, serves you right. Rather, he embodied the Old Testament law of love and didn't pay me back, but extended me mercy. I think stories like this need to give us a healthy fear of religion. What tells us who qualifies for our love and compassion? religion restricts God's mercy. I may be doctrinally and theologically sound. I may not sin in egregious ways, but am I a neighbor? Guys, because Jesus has been a neighbor to me, the question is, who will I be a neighbor to? And there is not a person that an answer can't be filled in there. I saw a friend this week who's recently become a runner, uh, and I had bought some new Nike running shoes because I thought they were comfortable. And he saw me wearing them, and he said, running shoes, are you a runner now? And I said, I'm not insane, no. But I often, it made me think, like, how often do I wear workout clothes and running shoes? I wear workout clothes when I'm going to watch sports, right? I wear running shoes when I'm going to sit at my desk all day, right, because they're comfortable. How often do I claim to have been neighbor loved by Jesus. 
yet never be a neighbor because I've drawn lines where Jesus has crossed. I might wear the clothing of Christianity, but I'm not fulfilling its purposes. You might be like me and wonder, are there ways I'm trying to be religious because I'm trying to keep score? I'm afraid if I love this person and welcome them in this way, what are other Christians going to think of me? What ways do I need to cross the street? And I think what's really tempting in this situation in a text like this is we can start making our lists. I should do this. I should do that. I should go help this person. But we're just becoming more religious in doing that, aren't we? All those things could be marvelous and wonderful, and there's many ways as a church that we want to step out and help people who are in need. But we have to be careful about our lists, And we also must be challenged because I look out and I see so many of you who I know in tangible and practical ways the love through which you show each other. I see many of your faces. I know the money you've given to somebody else in need. I know the meals that you've taken to other people who are hurting in our own church. And that is a way that we love one another because Jesus has loved us. But guys, this story is not talking about loving other Christians. It's talking about loving those who don't know Jesus. And so how do we change? How, how, how do we, if I'm not going to make a list tonight, like how do we change? Well, we don't change through our grit. We change through grace. We really do. Guys, because there is a tune in this world that you and I are drawn to, and it's the pay me back tune. It's the scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's the help me move, I'll help you move. Uh, I don't know why it made me think of um, the Odyssey uh, with Odysseus um, and that, that, that scene of the sirens. There's a famous scene where Odysseus and his men, you read this in school, I know you did, right? They need to row past the allure of the siren's song that lures people to their shores. It sounds so great, but it, it ultimately shipwrecks those people. Right by the rocks, the ship is destroyed. The appeal is strong but the result is d- disastrous. And so Odysseus had this idea. He's like, I want to hear the song, but I'm going to put wax in all my rowers' ears and then they can tie me down and I won't, I won't lead us astray. Right? The music was so tempting that he begged that they would untie him, but they didn't and he wasn't successful. Right? So in, in one sense, I think we can leave a room like that. Right? I'm just going to try really hard. I want to listen to the tune a little bit, but I need some restraint. But there's another story about those same sirens in the life of Orpheus. He was the greatest of all the musicians in Greek mythology. He became a master of the lyre and captured everyone who heard his playing. It was even fictitiously written that rivers stopped flowing, trees bent, and mountains moved, all in order to listen to him play, right? Clearly fictitious, but you could say he's a good musician. Orpheus joined the voyage of Jason and the Argonauts, and his playing actually saved the entire crew's life as they passed by the sirens. But they weren't saved because they plugged their ears. Right? They didn't gut it out like Odysseus and his crew. They were saved because they listened to the music of Orpheus. His playing drowned out the singing of the sirens. Right? There's a song of grit, guys. There's a song that's 
sung in this world that says, I'll pay you back. I'll draw these lines. Who is my neighbor? But there is a song that comes through Christ in the gospel that crosses that line and displays God's mercy. We have been neighbor loved by Jesus so that we would go and love our neighbors and display the love of Christ to them, display the glory of God to them. Are we listening to that? Have we experienced the neighboring love of Jesus? If we have, we become a neighbor like Jesus. So I'll pray. Father God, we come to you tonight and we know that these stories, these parables that you told are, they're not easy. They really correct us. I know they've corrected me, challenged me even this week, Lord. We, We humbly come to you tonight, God, as your people, and we ask that you would help us to see once again how loved we are by you and the great lengths that you went to save us, Lord, when we were in that ditch. God, I pray that we would know of your love for us in such a way that that we would love others with that same kind of love. So Lord, we just pray right now as we sing, as we reflect, as we pray, God, I pray that you would do work in our hearts in such a way that would um, cause us to display that love. In Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen.